0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about
0: in this episode include Keeping Your Game Serious, James Wallace, and Ken's London Book Hall. Labtown Games is proud to announce the Kickstarter campaign for their new tablet based tabletop role playing game, Storyscape.
1: Storyscape introduces an exciting new breed of role playing game system featuring an innovative system of game mechanics designed by none other than fledgling newcomer Robin D. Laws.
0: Storyscape takes the scout work out of gaming by putting the charts, math, and number crunching under the hood, letting you spend more time gaming and less time
1: interacting with the rules. It's designed to be universal and easy to expand and will allow you to play in almost any genre you care to name.
0: Starting with the fantasy build, which of course is the most in-demand build for any role-playing project, Game Masters will be able to fine-tune settings and difficulty levels, so whether you prefer heroic high fantasy or gritty dangerous noir, StoryScape can make it happen.
1: StoryScape is chock-full of easy-to-use, lightning-fast features and tools for Game Master and players alike. From virtual miniature creation, to the fog of war, to automated journals, all of it inside your tablet.
0: The built-in StoryScape Marketplace will give you access to the best adventure settings and campaigns created by Slabtown Games and by other users worldwide, and will also let you put your own creations
1: up for sale. The StoryScape Kickstarter is your best chance to get your hands on exclusive content and beta access for your gaming group. Head on over to www.slabtowngames.com and check it out. It's time once again to ask Kenan Robin. So let's ask Kenan Robin. Ross Ireland asks Kenan Robin, I've been playing for years. I have good players, but I have always run in a loosey-goosey style. How do I move from that to a serious horror game? Robin, do you have any advice for uh getting everyone onto the same page? I I know that you run a lot of different games because you're doing a lot of different sorts of playtesting. So from uh, fun and games in Galerion. Do you? How do you switch it up to do uh, Cthulhu hunting or, uh, or or whatever else that's uh, that's in a more serious or intense vein?
0: I do switch back and forth, and I know how to uh, mess with my players. And I'm content to have something that can shift radically into horror and freaking them out, and then having them joking around the next minute, and uh, can accept those shifts of tone. Um, and because I have introduced a wide variety of tones into the game over the uh, experience expanse of the players in my group, uh, which of course varies from uh, you know a recent attendee to someone who's been playing since the Feng Shui days. Uh, I don't need to do the thing that I'm f- going to first advise Ross to do since he's sort of established a rhythm with his group where they all kind of expect just the one mode, the kind of loosey-goosey joking around mode. And so it's going to be a bigger shift from there. Uh, And although there's a bunch of other techniques you can use, and that we'll talk about later in this segment, the first thing I would do is just um, sit everybody down or in the chat phase before one of your loosey-goosey games or afterwards, just say, I want to run a more serious horror game. And I wonder if you guys have any suggestions on how we can sort of shift from our usual M.O. to something that is a little more serious. And that way you're not finding ways to sort of trick people into shifting their traditional way of interacting together, but you're asking them to collaborate with you and, first of all, to recognize that it's something that's worth doing. And if they go through the exercise of just saying, okay, well, how do we be more serious, that may take care of it right there or take care of like 75% of it right there in that they're now grappling with the question and just the fact that they had that discussion may be enough to remind them when they show up the next time or more importantly, kind of three sessions down the road when they're sort of forgetting what the deal is and slipping back in. If you can just sort of periodically remind them, you can kind of gently get them into a different headspace without clocking them over the head with it.
1: I think that the I mean that sort of goes to the core of running horror anyway, which is to have your players buy in and to be working collaboratively with them. I think that you're absolutely right that you can't um trick someone into being intense and scared in a horror game. I mean you can maybe do it for half of a scene, but you can't do it as, as a true stylistic change of the of the game unless you have the players already on your side and already trying to help out. And yeah, if you've been running loosey goosey for ten years, it's going to there's going to be times that you slip up and just like anything else, uh it's it's like if you're dieting, if you spend one day and you binge on Christmas cookies, you don't say, Well, that's it. I can never diet again. You say, okay, that session went a little loosey goosey. Next session we'll come back to it and we'll start over and we're gonna be intense. Or maybe even if there's more time to do it in that session, provide some really a good freezing moment that gets the characters focused, and then maybe that will also focus the players on what the stakes are in this horror game you you don't want to try that ice water bath too often, but if you try it once or twice and it isn't working, that maybe means you need to go back to the talk to your players out of game uh, conversation that uh, that you were talking about earlier. I think that there's a lot of techniques uh and again you know stuff we can talk about that let you start a game fairly intensely and keep it running fairly intensely. I mean, I've written at least three books on the topic, so uh, 15 minutes shouldn't be too hard. Do you have any um, sort of best first practices, Robin, for starting things off in a a serious horror-y tone and then hoping that momentum will carry you through?
0: First of all, just give people enough time when everybody shows up and you're gathering the group together that people can joke and laugh and socialize and kind of get that out of their system a bit. And then have some sort of marker that here's where we consciously shift the tone. So that's where a bit of theme music, for example, the brilliantly creepy theme music that James Semple has composed for Trail of Cthulhu and now for Night's Black Agents and also for the Esotericists. This is, you could play a music cue that's the same music cue every week that sort of gives everybody the subliminal signal, an audio version of having the house lights dim, as it were, that encourages everybody to think, okay, the laughing and joking part is uh, done. And now we're on to the part where we're all consciously trying to be more serious. Um, And I guess maybe we can sort of ping pong back suggestions. So uh, Ken, what would be uh, another suggestion that you would make?
1: Um, in lieu of music cues, I have found uh, that it sometimes helps to start. Uh, sometimes 'll even say previously, and that will be the, uh, the, the 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 verbal cue that we're doing the the flashback that gets everyone set into what's going on. So the, I find that a good transition from joking around to playing the game is to get everyone remembering what happened last session, where they were, and what their characters wanted to do. And that's sort of the the little um uh, you know uh then segment on supernatural where we get everyone caught up, and it's like, oh, right, we were in the car, and we were going after this monster, and this was what was going on, and we had to save the life of the baronet, and whatever it is, and get the players back into sort of their character's mindset, sort of present uh, what you know about what was going on, and then, ideally, you've got something, you know, sort of queued up that's going to be a good, you know, intense scene, and it doesn't have to be a big scare or a big fight, it can be something that sort of reminds them of what the stakes are, sets it up. Maybe it's just that they find a body and they have to use a bunch of investigative skills to figure out, oh my God, nothing of the earth could have done this type stuff to sort of get them, uh, invested into the game and get them moving on it. You don't want to go from your opener to a scene of them just hanging around the headquarters, uh waiting for the you know vampire alarm to ring you want to open it on something scary and if that means opening a little bit in medias res or even opening with a tag scene uh where there's a bunch of npcs getting killed that's maybe the the way to go
0: right and just to backtrack a bit i guess other ways to sort of signal the ritual beginning of the episode would be literally dimming the lights if mm-hmm. that's the way your uh lights in your game room happen to be uh wired or uh it might be interesting and fun in a game where you are not relying on everybody having a mobile device, if it's especially if it's Knights Black Agents, you can have the uh, ritual moment when everybody takes their uh, cell phones and puts them in your lockbox for the duration to <laughs> indicate that uh, we're entering a different space for the next uh, three hours. There's some uh, making dramaturgy serve the needs of the story right there. Right. Um, another thing that I would uh, suggest is very important to a serious game of any kind, not just a horror game, is to find ways and mechanisms to make the characters seem more real. In a loosey-goosey game, you've probably got characters that are basically, they're character sheet with an overlay of the way that you usually game in a rela- relaxed fashion. And you don't necessarily have an emotional connection to them. And so that's why in The Esoterists, for example, you have sources of stability the things the emotional things that tie your character to uh not only their sense of sanity and and horror but also make them seem psychologically real or in fear itself the uh you're asked to supply the worst thing that you ever did and that also encourages you to play a character with more emotional depth who you therefore care about and therefore the, the fact that they're in the world with you and you're seeing the world through their eyes makes the world appear more emotionally real.
1: Yeah, I think definitely hooking characters into the story and providing them uh, more dimensions than just, you know, a shotgun 45%, dodge 85% is, is key for, like you say, not just for horror, but it's absolutely key for horror. If you play a game in which you're just, you know, Sam's playing the ninja again, that's not going to necessarily bring the same level of commitment and the same level of intensity that you're looking for from a horror game. Then if Sam is playing, maybe the guy's still a ninja, but he's a ninja with a particular reason why he's been driven out of, um, uh, driven out of the past, out of uh, Japan or out of his, uh, his home and has to, and can never go back there. I mean, maybe he's under a blood curse, maybe he killed a guy, whatever it is, just give Sam a reason that ties into the story, ties into the world and lets uh, the other players, instead of just saying, "Well, that's just Sam ninjing around," have Sam, have them be able to say, "Okay, this is why Sam's character is like this, and this is how we can respond to him as a character." And and then you, the GM, also, it's not just about the other players. You, the GM, can respond to uh, Sam's character in a way that maybe you wouldn't have if it was just, "Okay, he's just ninjing around the dungeon." That's all fine.
0: And for your very first shift from Lucy Goosey to serious horror, I would suggest. Picking a setting that is as close to the modern world, perhaps uncomfortably close to the modern world, as you can get. And then once you've done that, you can, you know, if you then want to go to the 1930s or the future or something with more of a Tom Clancy-esque level to it, uh, that'd be great. But, uh, for example, I've creeped out my players a lot over the years, but I've never had more success Then the Fear Itself campaign, Fear Itself is the gumshoe horror game where you play ordinary people. It's the victim space, as it were. And the group created gamer characters who lived in Toronto. And so uh, not only did they create more brilliantly fun dimensional characters than usual, but those characters seemed very much like them. And so when awful horror things started happening and very awful horror things started happening... The players were even more shocked because the characters uh, seemed very recognizable and very accessible to them. And also they built up an affection for those characters uh, that you did not always have for, for your you know, off-the-rack uh, dilettante or professor from uh, Call of Cthulhu, for example.
1: Yeah, I, I think verisimilitude, I mean, obviously, this is sort of going into general horror theory, but it's uh it was important enough for Lovecraft to make the point over and over again, so I think it's important enough for us. The notion of a world that feels real is absolutely key to any kind of intense involving play. Uh You can maybe get by with a romance game if the background is sketched in, if no one knows anything else about Verona except a balcony and a street fight, but in a horror game or any game in which you're intended to to care about the NPCs or care about, uh, the, the outside world, the outside world is meant to affect you. Then making the setting feel very real is very, very crucial. And the, you know, the real world, uh, you can it's right there in the name for God's sake. It's on, it's on the box, the real world. And the more familiar you are and the players are with that setting, the easier a time you're going to have of building verisimilitude. I think that, again, com- uh, like you say, Robin, uh, contemporary, you know, your surroundings, uh, my Unknown Armies game that was set in Chicago that month in that city that they would go by and they would come and they'd say, oh, my God, I actually saw the building you talked about or I think I actually saw the Invisible Towing Company in at work, you know and you you bring things out of your uh, mutually lived environment you present them that has a real uh, power and effect i'm still getting emails from people in that campaign that say oh guess what we had another campaign moment um i i saw that thing and so the 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 presentation of of your real surroundings is is a really good one that's one of the reasons i think that you know shows like x-files and uh supernatural worked so well is because they were tied into that quotidian daily life type of experience and i think um that as you get better at running horror, you can run it in, you know, a, a magical fantasy realm. You could run it in Narnia if you wanted to, but you still have to do the same degree of or, or more work on the NPCs and on the society and on making sure that actual actions have actual repercussions. And in a horror game, you don't have to pull your punches and those repercussions can be pretty terrible indeed.
0: And once you have got to that point, once you have real seeming characters in a recognizable world and the players start to get creeped out, you can then be a little bit more relaxed about people injecting humor into the situation because the fact that people are laughing, especially nervous laughter, uh, is first of all a quality of a lot of modern horror, is that the uh, horrible things are also absurd, and they're absurd one moment, and then they're uh, ripping the bones from your flesh the next. And the fact that the players need to relieve their tension by laughing and joking, as long as it is something that is part of the emotional rhythm of the game session and isn't sort of referential. So I would, for example, uh, as a GM, in my sort of subtle effort to cut off digressions that sort of take you out of it, I'd be much more likely to cut off somebody referring to another horror movie or even worse, referring to some other unrelated geek reference than I would to something that is funny in character. And the flip side of that, of course, is that you as a GM have to restrain your temptation to say funny things, either in or out of character, I would argue, I guess, uh, that tend to undercut that mood so that you have to be uh, conscious of the mood that you are putting out into the room because that's the mood that you're going to get back from the other players.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the... I mean, humor is absolutely rock bottom, I think. It's a human response to horror. I don't even think it's a Western, modern-day cultural response to horror. I think that, you know, you're bearing your teeth uh, in threat, and the other reason we bear our teeth is to smile. And so there's there's probably a biomechanical trigger back there. And people probably laughed at the saber-toothed tigers back in the caveman times. But the... You know, the way that you as a GM can take that is to make the NPCs who are interacting with the characters, characters who use sort of a black humor to get through the the reality of their day. And if you can cha- channelize the horror, like uh, like you were saying, into the sense of what is happening to us is literally absurd, which is to say is literally insane. That is, I think, a more productive way than, like you say, just doing a Monty Python reference or, you know, um, uh, even a reference to another horror show. Even a X files or a Supernatural reference is going to maybe break mood as they remember the natural, you know, uh, charisma of the characters or or the story beats that aren't going on there at your table but went on, you know, around a Hollywood writer's room table eight years ago.
0: Unless you're actually playing the Supernatural game in which referencing other horror things is Part of the job,
1: right? Yeah, if you if you've set up a, a sort of a postmodern, uh, you know, even if you're playing like a modern day Kolchak, I would say that having characters who somehow don't reference um, uh, Pennywise or Killer clowns from Outer Space if they're being attacked by you know shadowy um, uh, chalk faced creatures with blood all around their mouths that that would be more unrealistic. And if the again, if the horror comes out of the situation on the table or it comes out of the character's natural response you know, that's maybe where you can try and channelize the humor, because humor is going to happen regardless. Don't don't treat that as a failure. And even if everyone just loses it, and the mood is irretrievably shattered, it isn't irretrievably shattered. You can build it right back up, or you can at the very least have a combat and turn laughter into, an, into adrenaline, which is another uh, good way to go out on the evening.
0: Right, that's one advantage that horror has over other genres that you might want to do seriously, is that uh, if people are just punchy and jokey and distracted, you can you know, have a shagath come through the door with a tentacle mm-hmm. and uh, do something <laughs> really. Where did
1: you get that tentacle? That's yeah, not where his. Did he get it. Yes. <laughs> this is more. Oh, a tentacle, Bob! Why?
0: Um, but uh, you know, you can have some shocking, sudden inbreak of violence or uh, gore, or some really distressing uh, image or something unnerving. You can throw in some body horror, mm-hmm. and uh, there are all sorts of things that you have in your palette, and the whole point of a horror game is that awful things can happen at any moment and uh, you may have something happen that you didn't plan to have happen and then retroactively figure out why it happened as the players are responding it but uh, that's part of sort of yanking them back into the mood and it's something that's easier to do with horror uh, than as i suggested with a lot of other genres that you're trying to
1: do straight. Yeah, and, and you know, just the simple act of saying, make a listen check, or who wants to make a sense trouble test, or um, uh, which of you had the uh, telepathy again is a great way to get them thinking, oh my God, something's coming over the transom and it's not going to be pretty. And then that gets them into the mood. And once they've expected something horrible to happen to them, feeding them something horrible becomes a expected response, not something that fights against what they were going. So I find that the, you know, the call for the, you know, whatever sort of informational gathering, ideally a sense test, is a really good way to get everyone just rapidly focused on what's going on, especially if they've seen that these things will really, really tear them up when they were expecting them.
0: If you just can't think of anything that could happen at that moment, you know, if they're like in the middle of a locked room horror thing and, and just the logic of what you're doing doesn't permit you to uh, have the Shoggoth come through the door of the tentacle, then what you can do is have a flashback and uh, just hit a player with, you know, what is your uh, worst memory of claustrophobia? And to put them back into that psychological space of horror, hit them with a sudden question, uh, that keeps your plot intact, but then shifts the mood back to, unease and gets them thinking about collaborating with the story rather than breaking from it.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that um, that's actually a, a really good sort of a notion. I've only recently, I mean, recently in terms of my entire gaming life, but I've only recently started doing things like uh, letting the, the players build in their own psychological traumas, or not the players, the characters' psychological traumas, and say, what was that time that your character was trapped in an open grave, you know, or whatever? You know, what was What was that thing that happened to your character in Burma that you don't want to talk about And they have a little, you know, flashback, and I say, that's exactly the noise you're hearing scratching at the window now, or whatever.
0: Uh, So I think we've uh, covered a a good list of uh, bullet points there, and uh, can consider this question uh, not only asked, but answered.
1: And for more answers, uh, feel free to check out GURPS Horror 4th Edition, where I answer those questions at fairly considerable length.
0: Uh, It's almost as if Ross asked you this question for a reason. Hmm, Weird. We are here in beautiful Clapham, London, and unusually for a segment of Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. Both Ken and Robin are here to talk to somebody else, and that someone is our pal James Wallace. Hello. Of uh, Baron Munchausen and uh, many other fames, and we're here to talk about his many other gaming fames. So, uh, James, I guess the journalistic question first, which is... Uh, Where are you at with uh, Las Vegas, for which you had a successful
2: Kickstarter, and I think you sort of needed to pause to regroup for a little bit? I did. I had an enormously successful Kickstarter for Las Vegas, uh, which is a short-form role-playing game. It's modeled after an HBO miniseries, so it's four discrete acts, each one playable in an evening. And I was not expecting it to end up 800% funded and I think that weight of expectation has given me what I can only describe as writer's block. So I've contacted the backers and I've told them this and we did a poll quite recently and they said, James, just take a break, come back to it in a couple of weeks when you're less blocked. So at the moment I am actually finishing off Baron Munchausen 3rd edition, which like the previous edition of Baron Munchausen will not be revising the existing material, it will be simply adding more material. To it, And this is based on an extraordinary encounter I had with a gentleman at the uh, Spiel in Essen, the annual largest tabletop gaming event in the world, um, who claims to be the sole remaining descendant of Baron Munchausen and... uh, And in claiming that could not possibly be of anything other than the utmost veracity. Absolutely. Well, the alarming thing was he had a contract which apparently signed by his ancestor and my ancestor ancestor, John Wallace promising him royalties on the game in perpetuity so we've we've come to an agreement which is basically that we are producing co-producing this third edition together uh, updating it bringing in different genres because of the original game is about being a, a drunk nobleman in the early 18th century or Uh, early 19th century, late 18th century. Um, So we're bringing in new things that you can be. You can be a supervillain, you can be a former hero of the Soviet Union, you can be a a rock star or a super celebrity, you can be a caveman, you can be an immortal. Um, And these are all, I have to say, he's splendid. He's very good indeed at game design uh, and drinking. He's an expensive collaborator. But that's what I'm up to. So he he bears the same relationship
0: to his legendary ancestor as, as you do to yours. Absolutely, yes. yes. Um, and I understand just uh, this morning uh, you uh, were hit with a bolt of inspiration, which was another new thing that should be in Baron Munchausen III, okay. which is Munchausen Crescent. Could you explain to our listeners uh, how that works? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm completely blanking on that. Okay, so <laughs> earlier we were joking yes. that there would be a Munchausen Crescent
2: Yes, Munchausen Crescent. Sorry, I thought you said Munchausen Crossing for a moment, which would be Animal Crossing with Baron Munchausen, which would be—that's <laughs> that's,
1: that's when the raccoon sends you to do something that you can't. Guess. Go, go down and uh, lasso me the asteroid
2: belt, won't you, like a good chap? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't
1: think I can do that. I'll
2: pay you five hundred bells for an asteroid. <laughs> for an asteroid. Um, yeah, yes, um, Munchausen Crescent, which is a conglomeration of the Baron's famous storytelling game and the very famous British game. Mornington Crescent, uh, a game played on the London Underground system with the naming of stations in a particular order, so the person who ends up with Mornington Crescent, who is finally able to say Mornington Crescent wins the game. And I think these two things will fit together absolutely perfectly, if only I can work out how, but that's my job, I'm a games designer. Um, And one of the other interesting parts of your job is that you are
0: a games consultant. Uh, What what pray tell does that consist of?
2: That consists of all kinds of things. Um, I lecture at various universities. I'm doing a lot of work with London South Bank University at the moment. I advise companies on using games as part of marketing and branding exercises or internal training exercises. I look at existing games designs and critique them. I talk, talk to people, advise people, and design ways of converting existing games to other formats. Um, I've got a client list that includes people like Shell, companies like Shell uh, and Greenpeace. I was working for Shell and Greenpeace simultaneously over the summer. On the same well, game? Sadly
1: not on the
2: same game <laughs> Like in Nominay, you play the devil, devil play the angel if, if I could have brought the two together I, I would have done But sadly I could find no common ground The, the, the AI you have on this uh, Repair the Pipeline game is phenomenal I, I, It's as though some
1: intelligent player Keeps trying to break them
2: <laughs> Sadly not So it's, it's a great many things I'm still designing and, and trying to find publishers For my own stuff uh, Obviously tabletop roleplay but board games and card games as well so when you, for example, give a workshop for students, what does that consist of? Uh, the main one I do is a three-hour workshop, which is specifically about the process of game design. Uh, coming up with your basic concept and then developing a prototype and iterating that prototype through playtesting it and revising your prototype, playtesting it again. Uh, either you are not involved in the playtest. Other groups of students play the game for you and give you vicious feedback and you then have 20 minutes to go away and produce a new version of the game. It's all done in incredible haste, which I think is very good training for attempting to get anything done in the games industry. You never have enough time, you never have enough resources, you never have enough information. It's, it works well, but the number of people who come onto games design courses at universities never having designed a game is quite extraordinary. So it's a first taste of the process. And using the methodology of board game design um, as, as a paper prototype for a digital Game means that you can run through a number of prototype versions, a number of iterations, find the fun, find the core of the game that's really working, without writing a single line of code. So you can do it very quickly and very cheaply, and that's a very useful discipline. Now you're um, associated with Games Day London, or do you just are you a an, an excited attendant? Games Day London. Is it G- Games Day? Game, game, game camp. Game, camp, that's game camp. I am the director or chairman possibly both of GameCamp game Camp london which is an unconference um i don't know if you know unconferences they're not well known in gaming although actually the forty times guys have an unconference every year so i know a different thing. different type of unconference an un unconference an unconference is an <laughs> an it came out of uh, o'reilly the digital publishers uh, and they organized what they called Foo Camp originally an arm conference is basically a conference without organization the organizers preserve sort of like a game convention
0: <laughs>
2: it, yeah. well, precisely actually the, some of the very first games conventions I went to in the early 80s were essentially arm conferences because everything that happens is organized by the delegates on the day we provide a venue we provide a good lunch and coffee and, and facilities and a game library and if you want to just turn up and play board games either from the library or anything else you can but there's also what we call the big board and that simply has the names of the rooms across the top and the times of day in slots down the side and if you want to run a talk on anything you simply fill out a card and put it in one of the empty slots it says i will be in this room at this time talking about such and such a subject the influence on elef- of elephants on modern euro games and if people are interested, they will turn up. And some people deliver lectures, some people do workshops, some people just have discussions. It's a fantastically open and free format. It's very cross-disciplinary. We get people from all areas of gaming, from tabletop, role-play, we've had LARPers, um, lots and lots of digital people as well, but not just AAA or consoles or PC gaming, web gaming, mobile gaming, free-to-play, all the rest. How is there, um, uh, are some of the sessions uh, play tests or uh, just meetups to play games or is that a thing that happens like afterward in the hotel or in the bar? A, a lot of that, I mean, people play during the day, we have right. de- organized spaces and mm-hmm. groups come along to, to demonstrate games that they've right. created often more outre stuff. We've had sessions of um, lemons, lemon jousting, which is kind of what it sounds like, you're kind of jousting with a lemon on a stick, on a, on a spoon, and if someone That's knocks surprisingly your... surprisingly like it's described. Yes. right. Yes. Yeah. Um, Johann Sebastian Joust, which is a game that uses the PlayStation 2 Move controller not connected to a PlayStation, which is another motion-sensitive tracking game. To the music of Johann Sebastian Joust? Uh, not Johann Sebastian Joust, Johann Sebastian Um which is a fantastic <laughs> game. We had an amazingly good session of Cat on Your Head, which is a game in which you essentially play a pixel, although that's not what the way it's described. Basically an imaginary cat chases an imaginary mouse around a group of people and if you are the cat you say cat, cat, cat until you touch someone else they become the cat oh, and the cat Right, that's how the cat chases and the mouse cool. does the same thing and the, likewise it's um, a guy called Rob that's, Davis uh, who created it yeah, that's sort of similar to
1: uh, Jared Sorensen's Parsley experience where you're taking something that's from the
2: digital space and then putting it back out into a social experiment kind of like that yes yeah. I mean it's a very simple video game in which you nobody is in control mm-hmm. of either the cat or the mouse Right. Mm-hmm. it just becomes this kind of hive mind experiment it's not like anything I've ever played it is a brilliant brilliant game to be part of I'm not sure it's a brilliant game but as a participatory experience it's mm-hmm. just wonderful So what has teaching game design taught you about game design? It's taught me I know nothing. Um, Because in order to teach something, you need to put your own thoughts in order. You need to structure your, you know, to to, to tell someone who knows nothing. You need to rationalize everything and put it in a hierarchy and go, well, this is more important than that. And you just realize, oh my god, I thought I had all these theories, but I did, I had a skew of theories, but none of it had ever really concealed. Uh, And I've been teaching for a few years. I used to teach at the University of Westminster, and I've done visiting lectures at various other places. It's really interesting. I would recommend any games designer do some lecturing at some point, because it really forces you to think about what you think about games. I don't know where it was, but James Ernest uh, was teaching games design somewhere, and
1: basically discovered he had to write the textbook because... There wasn't one, and so he is, I forget how far he was, like a third of the way through the last time I talked to him, so at some point, we'll have James Ernest's
2: textbook of game design. Does that mean that we are going to have a James Wallace textbook of game design that comes out of what you've been doing? Possibly, possibly. I mean, I'm still more interested in game narrative than anything else, And, and those who know my track record, all both of you, know that back in the early 90s I and my uh, confederate at the time Andrew Rilston produced a quasi-academic journal called Interactive Fantasy which was all about stories in games games that tell stories, narrative structures and interactivity and it didn't do terribly well because this was kind of pre-internet or pre-the widespread internet and it never really found a market so I am going to restart that or start that in a different form and under a different name next year as an open quasi academic journal about telling stories within games using games to create narrative and using interactive structures and um, we'll see how that goes uh, so that's not me writing a textbook that's essentially getting other people to write the textbook for me Misha, well that, that's a plan that's how the textbook manufacturers uh, make their money so uh, one thing
0: that our listeners are often looking for and I am not in a great position to supply, since I'm so focused on playing my own games, are recommendations. So what uh, games have you discovered lately that you would uh, recommend that
2: our listeners should uh, run out and check out? Oh, interesting. Um, Well, as you may know, I I am the founder and organizer of the Diana Jones Award for Excellence in Gaming. Uh, I don't know if you've come across this. It's uh, it's an annual award. We give one award each year, and this year it went to Will Wheaton's Tabletop Show and pretty much anything that has featured on Will Wheaton's tabletop is pretty good uh, but the games I've really enjoyed myself this year uh, there's a little thing called Love Letter which is 16 cards and it's just it's not a it's not one of the great classic games but it is simple and elegant it's I've likened it more than once to a Swiss watch it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's all about the economy of design it is right? it is and there's a, a very simple narrative that and Diana that. Jones uh, nominee Diana Jones nominee which is why I, I brought it up other things I've enjoyed, um, the I finally got round to playing the Z-Man Z-Man editions of Tales of the Arabian Nights, which I believe is one of the great narrative board games. Which is again, it's not a great game qua game, but it's a it's, it's a hoot. Yeah, it's a great like, experience. It's it's huge fun. It's very very silly. It's it's one of those games. If you like games where people laugh an awful lot, it, it will do it for you. There's the new edition of Once Upon a Time, of course, now a year old, with two expansions already out and more to follow. Uh, what else it like uh, uh, uh who, who did that again? Oh, that was Andrew Wilston who I've mentioned before, a uh, fellow called Richard Lambert, and someone I'm far too modest to name. Other than that, I've been revisiting old classics, actually. I'm engaged in an exercise that I'm going to shortly start blogging about, where we're playing all the Spiel des Jahr winners in chronological order. Ah! Starting with Hare and Tortoise and, and working through that. And that, we're only up to four or five of them so far. It's been really interesting. Hare and Tortoise, the very first winner. Back from 1978. Still an excellent game with a very, very clever mechanic. Still in print, I would would recommend that. Quite highly. Rummy Cub, very overlooked game. I think it sold 44 million copies uh, as a family game rather than as a hobby game. Simple to play, it's more like a group puzzle, but huge fun. Uh, Sid Saxon's Focus, thoroughly out of print, but a very interesting abstract game, very clever. And Enchanted Forest, we played last week. The, uh, the classic still in print, Alex Raymond, fantasy board game, which is horrible! Oh my lord! That's a bad <laughs> game. I,
1: I was wondering, that surely
2: the even the the coveted Spiel des Jahres must have uh, hit a clinker now and again. I think that one that one is particularly. It's just we couldn't find anything to enjoy in there at all, and it's supposed to be a family and a kids game. It's tough. It, I mean, it's tough for us. Heaven only knows how kids manage. But uh, I mean, it was 1982. It was. Um, uh, one can only conclude it wasn't a great year for games because nothing of much note came out apart from Escape from Atlantis, which is still in print, and uh, something called Trivial Pursuit, which uh, I don't yeah. know if you've heard of. I think it was big in Canada, wasn't it, Robin? Uh, I yeah? believe it was uh, yeah. pretty big in Canada. Yeah. Mm. Uh, big in some particular
0: Canadians' bank accounts, yeah, as a matter of fact. Uh, so, Ken, do you have a final stumper for
1: James? A uh, final stumper for James? Um, now that you have uh, uh, young children, I do. Who you are bringing up into gamerhood? I, I do. Are there aspects of the way that they play games, or the way that they look at games, the way that they encounter games, that have baffled you, or is it pretty much? Oh, well, I've played games for children when I was a child or new children. It's all the same thing. I, what what what
2: part of having kids and playing games with them has caused you as a designer to go? Well, that was all backwards. It's it's kind of it's a lot of it. It's about the structure of games. It's the um, kids the games a board game is quite often the first time a child has really encountered very very structured play with rules that appear arbitrary uh and eliza back when she was three playing snakes and ladders for the very first time which she was really enthusiastic about she'd seen it on tv she'd read about it in books um, and I was thinking, I'm not sure this is going to go well, five or six moves into Snakes and Ladders, she kicked the board over, and part of me was, no, Eliza, no, don't, don't do that, and part of me's going, that's my girl, recognises, <laughs> piece of crap, you know, entirely random game with bad messages, about not only about games, but about life. Snakes and Ladders teaches you that the world is arbitrary and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> there is no skill in Snakes <laughs> you, you and should Ladders. Wait, at all. You should wait at least until college to discover <laughs> <That's>, that. <yeah. laughs> I was going to say, yes, learning, learning that at four sort of takes the whole point out of being four. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why you kick the board over. But no, they are enthusiastic um, games, we, uh, games players. We play quite often stripped down versions of games. Uh, if they like the look of the bits, I'll play anything with them. They love Matt Leacock's Forbidden Island. Mm-hmm. Um, which we play as a very simplified version. They love, um, actually more appropriate for them, Reiner is Who Was It? which is a cooperative board game about identifying a thief. So it's got logic puzzles built in as well, but it have, mostly it has a box in the middle <laughs> with batteries and a button, and it speaks to you in some of the worst voiceover ever recorded for anything. Woof woof, I am the dog. Go and look in the stable. It's, the voice is horrible but uh, the game itself is quite charming uh, and they absolutely love it they should have used Reiner <laughs> like, Reiner would have done a better job of it I am I the dog
1: on. you know how to look <laughs> so <Source> that's <is> obvious <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, Our our German listeners are are (laughs) steaming because uh, I've been taught on repeated visits to Germany that our German accent, which is based on Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove, (laughs) which in fairness to us is based on Erich von Stroheim, resembles no
1: way that any contemporary German speaks at all. I would say that those Germans who listen should go talk to Reiner. Because that was a letter perfect Reiner impression. That was there you go. We're not good. So
0: we're, Reiner, we're, we're not doing Peter
1: Sellers there. We're doing Reiner.
0: Reiner, there Reiner of
2: course, being resident in the UK now has that kind of the equivalent of the Transatlantic. That's right. He's doing a Peter Sellers. That's, yes. yes,
0: and and also
2: the hand
1: with white glove about. is <laughs> kind <laughs> of unnerving. <Right>, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. We have. We. This is the point at which, in a normal segment, we would rashly run to another hut because we're about to uh, cross the streams in a pretty major way. Well, for, for perhaps we should uh, thank our temporary
0: resident of this particular hut and do exactly that. So thanks a lot, James. Thanks, James. James. Hey, my pleasure. Yeah. As you listen to this, dear listener, you are already uh, well into 2014. But it's now time t- for us to cast our minds back to the Halcyon Forgotten Days of 2013. Specifically, the uh, days of December in which Ken and I were in London for Dragon Meat and is customary for that situation. Ken came away with a certain number of books. And that brings us to Ken's bookshelf. Uh, we had a lovely a long lunch in a wonderful restaurant on the Monday after Dragon Meat, and then as uh, Simon and Kat went back to the Pelgrane office to do Pelgraney things, uh, we set off into the darkness of beautiful downtown London in search of Treadwells, the occult bookstore, but by a strange, ineluctable magic of uh, us not quite knowing the non-grid pattern streets, suddenly wound up confronted with a different occult bookstore, and Ken, uh, perhaps we could start by telling the listeners a bit about the history of this bookstore that this year managed to get your money instead of Treadwell's.
1: The bookstore we found ourselves uh, stumbling into is the Atlantis Bookshop, which was a very, very famous uh bookshop for the sort of the Bloomsbury set. It was open in 1922, and it was also famous as an occult bookshop that Alistair Crowley used to show up at and, um, you know, uh, buy books on credit and not pay and annoy the staff and be Alistair Crowley all over them. And it, uh, for a long, long time, it was a big sort of moment in the uh, London occult scene. It was very big when the London occult revival happened in the 60s. And then whatever happened, it sort of, went into new ownership, I guess. But when I was there in the early 2000s, in 2003, I think it was coming off about a 10 or 15 year period of being owned by maybe its second other owner. And it looked more like a Danish modern furniture store. And then there were books there as sort of beautiful accents. And, you know, they were, some of them were quite good because it is a London occult bookshop and I bought books there. But when we walked back into the the new old Atlantis bookshop, it once more looked like an occult bookstore. It was all overcrowded, and, and the shelves were uh, full of of things that you wouldn't uh, have in your living room on a bet if you were a Danish modern person. And there was lots of posters and tarot cards and everything around, and it looked like a proper occult bookstore supposed to look. It had risen from the waves. It, exactly. It had phoenixed itself back. Uh, apparently, the current uh, owner and proprietor is uh the uh daughter, I guess, of one of the first uh founders of the bookstore back in nineteen twenty two, or is somehow connected to that uh family. And she was delighted and delightful to uh to share with us the joy that she felt in having brought her bookstore back from Ikea Showplace and into actual occult booking. And so uh perhaps I bought one or two more books out of enthusiasm than I might otherwise have. But um I still, I, I seriously thought that I'd come away with two other books that when I examined my hall in the cold light of day, I had not come away with. So, um, the fairies still took back their, their time for showing us that the Atlantis bookshop was back.
0: Uh, so this brings us to the first item on the list, and that is, uh, Thracian Magic by Georgi Mishev. Uh, why did you pick that up?
1: First of all, because Thracian magic is. One of those uh, magical traditions that is not particularly well known in the West. It didn't, it didn't get a huge amount of coverage uh, when people were, you know, reinventing or rediscovering magic and the occult tradition. They were obviously looking at things like Italian and English folk magic first off. And this was sort of a behind the Iron Curtain. The modern day Thrace is mostly Bulgaria. Bits of it are in Greece and bits are in Turkey. But the people who sort of care about Thrace are, were Bulgarians. And, uh, one obviously with a name like Georgi Mishev. One assumes that Georgi himself is a Bulgarian. And so that sort of national tradition stayed outside of, of the Western occult spotlight. And now to have a, you know, a fairly thick compendium and, you know, it, it doesn't look thick, but the, but the, as is the tradition it, with these uh, books, the, the font is close set and large on the page. And so there was, um, there, there's lots of good material in there. Also, of course, Thrace is where they worshipped uh, Zalmoxis, the uh, original resurrecting being staked in the heart god, so there's lots of uh, vampire possibilities in a book on Thracian magic, and it's just good to have there on the shelf to, to bulk out the, um, you know, your sort of 101s for everywhere in the world, ideally.
0: And uh, the next book, uh, the topic will be familiar for those of you who have ventured with us into the Liptany hut, which has its own black dog with red saucer shaped eyes, but this is shock, the Black Dog of Bungay by Dr. David Waldron and Christopher Reeve, who I assume is not, not that, that Christopher Reeve. Reeve. No. Um, so... <laughs> Although, what, wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> that, that, that would be uh, unspeakably awesome. Yeah. So, what does this add to the interesting uh, side channel of uh, alien big dog lore?
1: Well, first of all, this is a full-on folkloric study of just the Bungay incident. It doesn't necessarily go and talk about any of the other black dogs it doesn't talk about black shuck up in yorkshire it's just about this incident and like all you know reports of one incident the more you dig into it the more you realize that all of these incidents are sort of sui generis and the patterns we see in them a lot of times are imposed you know by people trying to fill out books of british black dog lore or whatever else and this is really it's like the roswell of black dogs if if you know and then so to have the whole discussion of this incident in one thing it's got the original uh, clerical reports it's got you know their uh, on-site folklore gathering and then you know sort of a, a whatever historiography is if it's not history the historiography so For for
0: the benefit of uh listeners who are not up on their mystery canids uh what in a nutshell is the Bungay incident
1: Uh the Bungay incident is that the church in um I want to say in Bungay, perhaps. Uh, the Church of St. Mary's in 1577, there was a giant black dog that showed up and, uh, sort of, uh, scared the bejesus out of everyone, or I suppose in 1577 into everyone. And so the, uh, that sort of becomes a, one of the stories that other folklore about black dogs are built into and built around, just like every UFO crash starts accreting Roswell parts, even if they weren't in the original report. The black dog of Bungay is a similar sort of um, sort of uh, event that uh, that that acts as the, as a the signpost of it. But basically, what it is is you know, in 1577, they saw a you know big scary black dog, and it showed up inside the church, which is what sort of set people off as opposed to just seeing it out on the on the moor or the fen or whatever they have near Bungay. But to see the the, the devil dog just in the church, running the whole length of it, and to see it obviously, during a time of great religious upheaval in Britain, is one of those things that stuck in everyone's mind and became a, a real sign that the devil either approved or disapproved of Protestantism, I suppose, depending on <laughs> what, what side of um, uh, of Bungay you were.
0: Uh, like a lot of uh, giant dogs, it was open to interpretation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it, it did not then sit down and deliver a discourse on Calvin, which I suppose would have been a really interesting encounter. Maybe, maybe that will be somewhere in the book.
0: So, uh, speaking of influential figures. Uh, the next thing is a graphic novel. It's, a uh, Lester Crowley wandering the waste by Martin Hayes
1: and H.R. Stewart. Your attempt to, to, uh, to curry favor, even favor with an OU, uh, by pronouncing <laughs> his name correctly will get you nothing. Uh, this is because I, I looked at it and it looked, uh, very attractive. Uh, the, the art is, sort of um Guy Davisy a little bit and a little bit um Eddie Campbelly, which is I think good for the for the for the tone of the thing. And it's the first uh full on graphic novel about Aleister Crowley that I've run across. So I figured I'm in the shop where he used to pester people. There was a little exhibit downstairs on the uh on his uh exile years that uh we did not go down and see because we didn't have that kind of time. But it just seemed like this was the time and the place to pick up a uh autographed, I should point out graphic novel involving Alistair Crowley and his various sordid adventures. So I I thought that that, it looked like a good addition, not just to the Crowley shelf, but also to the graphic novel shelf.
0: Next up, we have something that uh, seems to suggest more saber-toothed tigers than I suspect it contains, and that's Savage Continent, Europe in the Aftermath of World War II by Keith Lowe. This seems like uh, a more sober-sighted title uh what uh
1: is that book about um well this is a book from our later stop at Foyle's, which of course is the great uh bookshop in uh Charing Cross the great london uh, book institution uh, which we were told in you know tones of breathless terror Foyle's is moving and then it turned out Foils will be moving next door, so it's not like, you know, Foyles is moving to, you know, Aberystwyth or something idiotic.
0: Yes, and, and unlike Atlantis, it did not appear to us in a shimmer of mist. It was where we thought it would be.
1: Yes, it, it just turned out to be impossible to get to because they're tearing the very living heart out of Tottenham Court Road just to mess with me. Um, but anyway, we did get there uh, despite uh, the best efforts of British transport, and uh, there I picked up Savage Continent, which is about... The real post-apocalyptic hellscape that was Europe after, you know, in 1945, 1946, this I picked up for a couple of reasons. First of all, because with Day After Ragnarok being a post-apocalyptic hellscape, I wanted to sort of get a sense of what that really was on the ground in Europe. If I ever do anything set, say, in, uh you know, post-Ragnarok France or post-Ragnarok, uh even in post-Ragnarok East Europe, I want to sort of look at, at what that felt like on the ground for real. And also I've got a Delta Green short story uh, cooking that uh, Dennis Detwiller will uh, at some point pull the trigger on me writing that is going to be set in Germany in 1945 uh, as uh, the Delta Green version of Operation Paperclip goes into action.
0: Through the haze of hindsight, it's very easy now to forget what the extent of the devastation was and for how long a period it dominated uh, life in uh, Europe and uh, continued the economic depression in uh, Britain, for example.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you go and you and you rewatch the third man and you think, okay, the third man is happening in a city that actually kind of got off light, <laughs> you, you begin to get a notion of how just unutterably horrible it was in Central Europe and, and especially in Eastern Europe, where obviously two uh, giant genocidal armies had literally raped their way for, you know, hundreds of miles and all the way across Europe and all the way back across Europe. And probably that part of Europe had, you know, the Mongols were probably nicer to that part of Europe than World War II was. It's just an utter, you know, atmosphere of human devastation. There's a really good book um, from Osprey about the situation in East Prussia. um, And it's probably called something really Osprey-like, like Battleground East Prussia. It's by a guy, I think, named Pruitt that is really, really good on not just the military question of that battle, but also... What's happening to all these civilians? Because, of course, they're hiding behind the Wehrmacht as the Red Army comes in. They do not expect good things from this, uh, the communists, which, you know, is not at all wrong. And um, so there's a lot of, of, you know, refugee questions. And what, what do we do with all these people? And the answer is, what do we do with all these people? We march away and we leave them to starve in the ruins. And that's what happened pretty much all over uh, the sort of central and eastern two-thirds of Europe. And the real you know, sort of the miracle rebuilding of West Germany that we think of now from our hindsight as happening in a twinkling. Even that only happened, you know, in the sixties, you were still driving around parts of West Germany and seeing bomb damage and, and rubble and stuff that was all torn up uh from the war. And so in the part of Europe where, you know, Stalinists were involved in rebuilding their fo- their former foes. You can imagine what a, a hellscape it was. And this is sort yeah, of...
0: Yeah, it's a rebuilding with an asterisk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You, when I was in Hanover, you can see that quite clearly, because there's uh, the original architecture and the rebuilt architecture. Well, the rebuilt architecture is in the style of the 60s and 70s, so that tells you uh, right there how long it took to start putting things back in, in place and... Of course, being the 60s and
1: 70s, the results are <laughs> often jarring in comparison to the uh, they're, original They're not so is, uh, as easily distinguishable from Soviet occupation as you might wish.
0: Um, well, to a, a little more uh, fanciful urban curse, we have London's Curse by Mark Arrainon. And uh, this has the gold mask of Tutankhamen staring out from the title. So that this implies that... Uh, Maybe like everyone else associated with uh, King Tut, that uh, London shouldn't have messed with him either.
1: Yeah, this is a this is basically a book about the curse of Tutankhamen, and it may or may not have been carried out by a evil mastermind. That all those uh, the deaths of the people associated with the Tutankhamen mask, I think, and I haven't read it, so I don't know if I'm slandering Mark Bainon, but I think that he is going to suggest that. And I can only hope that it is an Egyptian cult led by Skullface, uh has <laughs> uh, as going around killing people associated with the uh with the excavation of Tutankhamun's tomb. Now, just if it's only a report of Tutankhamun phobia and the sort of pop culture phenomenon that was the curse of Tut in London in the twenties and thirties, it has, you know, great value to me as a trail of Cthulhu. Uh, writer, but if it is as bizarrely terrible as I hope and suspect. And I should point out here that the uh, proprietor of Atlantis Books was happy enough to say, oh, this won our bad book of the year award, which <laughs> begs a whole different batch of questions.
0: Yes. And, and, uh, she was not an unbeliever. By no, any means. no. She, she was... at one point said that, uh, people <laughs> don't realize that, Madame Blavatsky was every bit the shaman that Rasputin was, and you were able to nod in agreement
1: with that as stated. I I, I said it forthright. I said I, I think you're absolutely right, <laughs> which was great fun. But anyway, the um uh the yeah the notion that this book is is uh, a cult bookstore crazy as opposed to normally crazy is is filling me with light, and I can hardly wait for my my Christmas break to start so that I can um uh, I can just sit there and, and dive in and find out exactly what. Uh, London's alleged curse may have been. And I do hope that Mark Bainon um, uh, uh, delivers the goods. If it just turns out that uh, he comes up and says, nope, it was just journalistic sensation, scandal-mongering, I'm going to be very disappointed in you, Mark Bainon.
0: Right, and it is Bainon with a B, not Rainon with an R, because I was
1: uh, mispronouncing it based on my blurry photo. Uh,
0: (gasps) Speaking of blurry photos of book jackets, the next up is Master of the Mysteries, The Life of Manly Palmer Hall. And let me see if I can get that author
1: in focus. I can't. Who's the author of that book? The author of that book is Louis Sahagun, S-A-H-A-G-U-N, which implies a connection perhaps to the great uh, uh, Spanish historian Bernard Sahagun, as opposed to Gilman, although, you know, I won't turn down Gilman. And Manley Palmer Hall, Robin, you'll be delighted to know, is another Canadian who comes to America to make good. Ah. Yes. And he is America's easily foremost and most prominent Rosicrucian, and in addition to uh, writing, I, th- I think it was a book that I plugged back in the occult bookshelf uh, days, The, um, the uh, Secret Teachings of All Ages, which is just a beautiful, beautiful, he, he called it the big book when he was writing it, and indeed it is, and this is sort of his whole story, which, as with many occult uh, thought leaders, turns into stories of people getting fat and divorced and angry at all their relatives, and then, um. Oh,
0: it happens to most of us, to be fair. <laughs>
1: yes. Well, uh, hopefully the divorced and the relatives is, you know, up in the air still. But the, uh. The great bit is that his death in 1990, as with many cult leaders, is fraught with arguments over the will. And so, therefore, there was a, um. A, a sort of a scandal and a sensation and a different people being brought in. Uh. I think Cyril Lee, the, the, the great opportunist medical examiner, got paid to do a, uh. inquest. And so there's a um, uh, there's a scandal and a and a and a and a mystery about his death, which the proprietor, uh, when she sold me the book, said, um, "Ah, yes, the murdered magician." And I had not known at that point that he was murdered, um, and I was barely willing to credit that he's a magician. But the, the <laughs> fact that uh, Manly Palmer Hall, who was um, really, I mean, he's if you're watching Sleepy Hollow, Manly Palmer Hall will recur to you if you are of a Manly Palmer Hall type mind. He had a great a book I think was called America in Prophecy or something like that, which was sort of his, uh, you know, immigrant desire to take all of America's Sort of crazy 19th century things that were said in drunken after dinner speeches and turned them into a body, a a coherent body of Rosicrucian secret lore about how America has been astrologically picked by the, you know, Thetans or the, um, Egregores or the secret masters. Well,
0: trying to find a theory that makes America coherent is a recurring pastime
1: of Canadians. (laughs) It's a a recurring pastime of all kinds of people. But uh, in this particular case, he came up with a really I mean, if I were going to believe nonsense, that would be the nonsense I believe: that secret masters were uh, or- orchestrating uh, America to hold back the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I would be a sleepy, hollow, manly Palmer Hallite. And so uh, just having the biography of him, he also... Uh, I should mention, uh worked in Hollywood. He wrote a movie that did not come off and he provided a lot of occult ideas. So a uh, producer would say, people like the crystal ball. What's, about, what's going on with the crystal ball, Manly? And he'd give them a whole bunch of stuff about crystal balls that they would then throw out and give pull a negri or someone a crystal ball and they'd be done. But he wrote a treat. So, he, he was a consulting occultist. He was literally a consulting occultist. And he made a, a very nice living at it too. So, I'm obviously in the wrong line of work. But he... Well, w- w- once you read this, we'll have
0: to do a full uh, consulting occultist segment. On oh, him, yeah. He's,
1: he's a party. He wrote a, a, a an unproduced sequel to Dracula, which uh, endears him to me in many other ways. So, Manley and I, uh, like many Canadians, um, I think are brothers under the skin. Next up, we have
0: Unknown Crusader Castles by Christian Milan.
1: And this also is from Atlantis, but this is a serious grown-up book about Crusader Castles. And the unknown ones are not secret castles that are hidden behind the vibrational barrier, as perhaps I had hoped. But they are the castles that no one ever talks about because they're not in uh, Israel and Palestine and Jordan. They are in um, Turkey and they're in Armenia and they're in Cyprus and Greece and places like that. And so he's trying to do, I think, a general uh, military structural study of why the Crusaders built these castles and what purposes they served, both militarily and sort of in terms of political dominance of the landscape. And uh, I'm a fan of castles, and I am a, uh, I have a rooting interest in the Crusades, certainly. And so the, um, the notion of a whole new book on the military history, sort of of the outer side of the Crusades, was intriguing to me. For that reason alone, and the fact that I could buy it at Atlantis, and therefore keep it crazy made me even happier
0: uh, well, uh, a book on castles needs uh, no explanation to gamers as why they would be interested in that right uh, next up, we have American Smoke by Ian Sinclair, and that's uh, one of those Ian's with
1: two eyes. Uh, what is that all about um uh, Ian Sinclair, to sort of back it up a long different way, I discovered I think as virtually everyone of our ilk did in the footnotes to From Hell, uh, Alan Moore's uh, massive uh, Jack the Ripper magnum opus. And Ian Sinclair, when he was a younger, uh, goofier person, wrote a uh, sort of a novel, sort of a weird set of poetry about Jack the Ripper called uh, uh, Whitechapel Scarlet Letters. And that became something that uh, really inspired one of my other great British literary heroes, Peter Aykroyd, to write uh, Hawksmoor and to write a bunch of other things that were set in sort of that neck of London. And so I followed Occult London and I followed Jack the Ripper to Ian Sinclair and then discovered that Ian Sinclair is not only sort of one of the godfathers of what uh, they call psychogeography, the the looking at a geographical place and trying to figure out all of the weirdness and, and strange ties that make that place it instead of somewhere else which is obviously something that I'm interested in anyway. But he's also a really, really good essayist on sort of cultural history. And so he will, on the, uh, on the excuse, like there's, there's the book that I bought previously, where he uh, there was a, a literary London madman who escaped uh, his prison and ran across eastern England. And so Ian Sinclair will follow the track of that guy and say what's happening right now, where that crazy person was, and find connections, either broad or tenuous, to uh, to that happening, and so in American Smoke, he's traveling around. It's sort of a collection of travel essays, and it's sort of a collection of uh, sort of a threaded uh, examination. But he's looking mostly at the Beats in America. Your Kerouacs and your um, uh, your Burroughs's. Your Burroughses. There's some lovely Burroughs stuff. He uh, he met Burroughs while Burroughs was still alive, and so there's a, a meeting of the two great minds in here. And the notion that Ian Sinclair, who I had always thought of as the London bard par excellence in terms of psychogeography, the notion that he was doing an American book where he goes around to America, sadly, apparently not to Chicago. Um, it You know, I had to buy it and I bought it in new British hardback, which will tell my listeners just how much I love Ian Sinclair. And uh, I dipped into it in the airport and he's already gotten more out of Gloucester, Massachusetts than I think I've gotten out of um, uh, anywhere in Massachusetts. So I have, I have great hopes that the rest of this book is going to be just as strong. The, I've peeked into the William Burroughs uh, stuff, and it's pretty great, too.
0: Well, that's why we depend on the Ken's Bookshelf segment to tell us about things that we uh, need to know about and don't yet. Uh, next up, uh, and this is uh, goes to another important part of your book acquisition tradition, which is paying tribute uh, to the uh, library guardian, Uh, your wife, the lovely Sheila, uh, and you've got what looks like another fine book on poisoning the damnation of John Dennellan, the mysterious case of death and scandal in Georgian England by Elizabeth Cook.
1: Yeah. Um, that is one of those books I, I picked up, uh, for Sheila. It's about a, um, a murder in, uh, Warwickshire somewhere in 1780, a guy named Sir Theodosius Broughton or Boughton, I guess it was, uh, he died in painful convulsions just after taking his medicine, like his wife told him. And, <laughs> that, and as anyone who is, uh, married and, uh, interested in murder knows, that is always a good start to a, to an adventure. And so the, uh, uh, this is just one of those sort of classic, uh, poisoning narratives. My wife is a, a true crime aficionado and, um, has a interest in me taking my medicine. So there's a, there's a number of, <laughs> Of positive <laughs> events in in play here for for this book, and it it's sort of a true crime i don 't say a true crime classic because maybe it 's a little too recent to be a true crime classic, but it's a a well beloved true crime book, and it turns out uh Sheila did not already own it, which was like a double bonus uh, but had heard of it so it 's a triple it's a rare triple word score coming back from foils with a crime book for sheila
0: uh so from the toxic to the geopolitical we have why Europe grew rich and Asia did not by press. Presaninan- Partha Sarathi.
1: Yeah, um, this is a entry into sort of what they call the divergence debate, which is literally the question of why Europe grew rich and Asia did not, and it has been answered uh, on all sides by European and increasingly by non-European scholars, and is a great and interesting debate because it is about sort of the thing that created the modern world, and uh, like many things that created the modern world, there's probably not one answer, but uh, that does not stop uh, scholars from deciding that the area they coincidentally have been studying for 25 years provides the answer. prasanan Partha has been studying uh, very usefully for him Indian economic history. And so he is interested in – currently the, the the debate was sort of rekindled by a guy named uh, Pomeranz who talked about China. And since China was so much richer and so much more technically advanced than Europe, what's the deal? And his – he tried to write a book that said there was no divergence, and everyone's just imagining things, and that got hooted down by the academy, but it sort of set the groundwork for the debate, uh, the sort of the modern version of it between Europe and China, and uh, Partha Sarathi points out, hey, what about India? India, by his uh, evidence in the book, had about 20 or 25% of global GDP during the period uh, 1600 to 1800, which is the period under discussion, and he... Uh, presents a lot of very interesting stuff about Indian economic history, about Indian uh, sort of the technical knowledge base in India that I did not know. Um, there's one really great factoid in it that I think is sort of a, uh, I, you can stand as a, as a judge for the whole thing where um, he points out that there are 30 million books from India in libraries all over the world from this period, from the 1600 to 1800 period. And he says, If they are existing in libraries all over the world now, by definition, they must have been in India before 1800, right? You know, they would have been looted at some point and taken to all these other libraries. It wasn't the Indians sent them all out as an ILL system. Which means that there is an enormous installed knowledge base in India. That's a lot bigger than two or three royal libraries, which is what we sort of imagine. You know, the Mughals had maybe a big library of 80,000 books, like the Library of Alexandria or something. And then that's it. And everyone else is trundling along in squalid peasantry, hoping that the British will conquer them. That's not how it works. There's a huge intellectual base in early modern india that literally got scattered to the four winds by uh the collapse of the mogul state and the conquest of the british and that alone should make you start re-examining these questions of what was actually going on in the early modern era and as an economic history he makes uh, a couple of sort of fundamental arguments that um the reason that europe grew rich his answer is that northwestern europe was faced with Crippling trade losses from Indian cloth, uh, which was better than European cloth, and certainly in many cases it was. And also, uh, they, had be- uh, they had deforested themselves faster than the rest of the world, so they were forced to find alternative sources of fuel. So it's sort of an evolutionary reason that they have an economic You know, crisis where they have to keep experimenting with weaving and they have a environmental crisis where they have to find alternate fuel sources. So that gives you the spinning Jenny and the steam engine, which gives you the industrial revolution, which gives you everything that lets Europe conquer India and China and everywhere else and be boss of the world for 200 years. And this is a very powerful, very useful book, which does not, however, answer the question of why aren't there Indians over in Europe uh, interfering in their wars the way that there were Europeans over in India interfering in their wars. So I think that he is not giving quite enough credence to, uh, at the very least, uh, military technology and military inquiry in Europe. And so there's it's a big part of the debate, but I don't think it's the whole thing. And you can certainly make evolutionary arguments about Northwest Europe is the only place that has you know high enough tides that you have to build a ship that can hold a broadside, and maybe that's enough. But I think that there's a lot more to that, and that's probably a history hut or a geopolitics hut. Uh, in the future.
0: Right. And there's possibly also the concentration of, uh, quite different cultures who were in conflict with one another and therefore had incentives to build up their war machine anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although again, you can, uh, India is an interesting counter argument to that, but I, this is a whole different hut, but that's the kind of book that a good, great uh, divergence book is, is that opens up, you know, whole new areas for you to argue about. And that is, uh, I would recommend this unreservedly to anyone who's an economic historian or a early modern historian or someone who's into the divergence debate. Really good.
0: Uh, well, normally when we start to strain another hut, we end the segment, but our book pile has not yet been gone through. So next we're still on the geopolitical tip with Atlas of Stateless Nations. In Europe, and uh, when you first think about this, you think is that not an oxymoron? But of course, uh, tell people what a stateless nation is.
1: A stateless nation is a nation, meaning a, uh, a self, uh, an easily notable ethnos, right? A a, uh, a national grouping. So that might be Wales, or it might be Brittany, or it might be Catalonia, or it might be the Basque Country, or it might be um, you know Corsica or whatever. And those places, although identifiably national places are not countries in the sense that they don't have, uh, you know, a vote in the UN and they don't have their own stamps and all the other stuff like that, that you expect. They don't have sovereignty fundamentally. And so
0: what light does this, uh, Atlas by Michael Badlor Penlez, uh, <laughs> boy, uh, uh, my, uh, was that Belgian? My Belgian name pronunciation is, uh, shoddy at best. Uh, what light does uh, this book throw on that?
1: Well, um, basically what this is is a, a sort of a sympathetic in that uh, way that only a European who is fully confident that there will not be another world war over the question can be to stateless nations. Um, and it's just a nice little compendium, and each one has got a map and a and a flag and all the other things. And as a alternate historian, I am always interested in questions like... Um, why is there one Italy but a bunch of Belgians and uh, and things like that. So you you look at uh, a book like this as sort of grist for the mill. As a geopolitician, it's interesting just to see what's up in Europe and it's just a really attractive book. So that was uh, that's always a, a, a desideratum in atlases. So yeah, it, it basically it's, it's just nothing more than my uh, uh, atlas loving and then this was a really good atlas on that topic. He's you know, basically presenting all of these claims uh, from, say, Scotland, which would be the one that's going to have a big vote, although I think Catalonia is going to have a big vote also next year, and or this year, I should say, and um, all the way down to things like the gagaos in Moldavia, who have sort of pulled away by dint of no one being able to run anything in Moldavia, but are probably not likely to get, you know, international recognition the way that, say, Scotland or Catalonia might.
0: Um, Now we move to cultural conflict uh on an underworld scale where it's uh, less about borders and more about shivs. It's Shadowland, How the Mafia Bet at Britain in a Global Gamble by Douglas Thompson.
1: Yeah, this is um, basically, it's a criminal history. The notion is that at some point the mafia, the American mafia, tried to move into Europe and uh, expand its operations overseas and they decided on London as the place that they had the most inroads already and so they were going to use that as the jumping off point and this is the narration of what happened in London's criminal history that prevented, uh, the American mafia from taking over Europe. And it's sort of a criminal history of London in the 1960s. So obviously it pings me on three different levels. If I ever do a 1960s occult London project, be it game or novel or whatever, uh, this is going to be a crucial work because, uh, there's obviously a lot of slop over in the best of times between occultists and criminals. And this is Gonna be. A, it, it looks like it's gonna be a good criminal history of what's going on on that sort of higher level uh, thing that you don't necessarily get a lot of uh, crime histories. A lot of them turn out to be, you know, it's just about this one guy, and then you have to sort of piece together from the index the nine guys who are actually running the operation and wherever. But this is a it's a higher level sort of strategic criminal history, which I, I like that as a genre.
0: Now, before our sumptuous lunch, we went to the British Museum to see a Shunga exhibit, a, an exhibit of erotic Japanese woodblock prints, or Yukio-e, which I think uh, we could not figure out how to talk
1: about in a family-friendly podcast. <laughs> but uh, we would like to give a shout-out to the unknown Japanese explorer who discovered the nipple circa 1800. So, yes. good for you, uh, heroic Japanese man.
0: Uh, it is a, a really impressive uh, exhibit and has sheds a lot of light on uh, the cultural corners behind that. And also, if you're a manga fan, you can see the roots of uh, the manga illustration style.
1: And if you're a J-horror fan, also, you can see a lot of the roots of that visual style coming out of, of these kinds of uh, prints and this kind of uh, uh, highly colored, shall we say, uh, storytelling.
0: Yes. There's some eye-popping pop-up books, shall we say. <laughs> yes. Yes, there are. But on a more G-rated note, uh, you picked up a book in the bookshop, and that was Pacific Encounters, Art and Diversity in Polynesia, 1760 to 1860 by Stephen Hooper.
1: Yeah. And this is a uh, the ca- the the catalog of an of an exhibit that we did not see, as uh, so many good books at the British Museum bookshop are. Um, and this is basically just a whole bunch of uh, Polynesian uh, sort of uh, religious art and religious carving, and then general art, and the notion being that obviously most people, unlike uh, you know a deracinated Westerners, don't separate the artistic and the religious that it's all in need. They don't separate the religious and the rest of their lives because it's all part of, you know, it's self evidently true that, that their God is everywhere and doing all kinds of stuff. And so, uh, the notion of Polynesian religious art is of obvious, uh, utility to a author of Cthulhu mythos material. So in addition to trawling through it, looking for things that might or might not be, uh, Dagon or Cthulhu, it's just also, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a British Museum exhibit, so it was brilliantly curated. It's full of really terrific, uh, eye-popping, interesting, think-making pieces of art. And it's, uh, it, it's a good examination of, of sort of that South Pacific culture right before uh, uh, we uh, sailed in and uh, convinced them that wearing clothes and growing pineapple was vastly better than whatever they were doing before.
0: And also from the British Museum, we have the Queen of the Night It's part of the British Museum's Objects in Focus sort of mini-book series, and I cannot make out the author
1: name, can you? The author name is Dominique Colon, C-O-L-L-O-N. And, uh, yeah, I had not been aware of the Objects in Focus series, but it seems like a natural. If you are the owner or operator of a museum, you might want to pay attention to this. The uh, notion is they take one specific piece from their museum, and they write a a little sort of an Osprey-like book about it, just a little tiny book focused on that uh, on that piece only. And this particular piece, The Queen of the Night, is a carving, and I want to say it's from Mesopotamia. It, oh yeah, it's an old Babylonian plaque, and it's from circa 1750 or 1800 BC, and it depicts a winged goddess with lions and owls and stuff all climbing around her, and she has vulture feet and uh, all manner of ritual stuffs hanging around her. And she may or may not be Lilith, and that is where uh, those of us who are fans of vampires and uh, uh, Judaic mysticism and all manner of other things perk up our little heads. And she is almost certainly not Lilith as we come to know and love Lilith, but she is very much an interesting-looking goddess or monster. And the notion of having a whole book on probably, if not the first, but one of the earliest great representations of that female entity, uh, and she may just be a really big, uh, what they call the Lilitu, uh, which is a, a type of uh, a vampiric monster spirit from the Middle East. That alone will be useful for a Knight's Black Agent Sky. Plus of course it's a lovely stila. It's a nice little souvenir from the British Museum. And I suspect it will be a Ken Writes About stuff in the not too distant future. Although not just about this particular uh uh bar relief, but also about Lilith as a as an entity and all the wonderful changes you can ring on her.
0: Uh, and now finally, the last book in the pile, uh, you picked this up for my favorite reason that you picked up a book in this go. The book is The Gnostic Faustus, The Secret Teachings Behind the Classic Text, uh, which sounds like a sort of a bog-standard uh, book for Ken to buy. But then the name of the author is Ramona Freydon, and if one remembers one's uh, comical books from the 70s, that will have an interesting and unexpected ring to it.
1: Yes, because uh, Ramona Freydon was the artist for Aquaman, among other things, as well as uh, Metamorpho and apparently Brenda Starr for a while. And so uh, when the artist of Aquaman is telling you about the Gnostic Faustus, I don't know about you people, but I pay attention. And this is one of the things where Robin was asking, uh, in an occult bookstore as opposed to a regular bookstore, can you still depend on the universal sign of a crazy book, which is the vastly over-textualized back cover? And I said, well, obviously, every publisher is different, and some of them are better than others, but there are some, he said, reaching his hand out to a book that was spine-out only, that you can probably pretty much count on to do that. And I pulled down the Gnostic Faustus, and sure enough, the back cover is just a morass of text telling you how vitally important it is to know that the uh, Faust story can be um, uh, metaphorized to uh to, to, to match Gnostic um uh, uh poems and uh and parables, because as it turns out that's how metaphor works. But that's not what Remote Afraidon is talking about. She's talking about how the Faust legend is actually a secret teaching tool for a Gnostic uh cult. And that is the kind of uh material that I think um well, I mean, if, if you're a Gnostic cult, an interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting notion to use your secret teaching tool that seeking knowledge forbidden to normal people will get you damned to hell. That is maybe not the way that I would have gone about it as a Gnostic cult, but... Then well, I'm not...
0: that, that's a narrowing feature. You want to,
1: uh, <laughs> you know, scare away the shirkers. That's right. This is, if you're man enough, it's like a Marine Corps recruitment ad. If you're man enough to do this, then maybe you can be a Gnostic. Um, yeah, so I I, I think that it's going to be great fun on the Faust legend. There are obviously vastly better books on Faust, but um, I don't think that any of them were written by the artist of Aquaman, so...
0: So did Faustus, uh, in this version, learn how to command dolphins?
1: Maybe. He may have learned to command dolphins. Um, I'm... I'm actually, I think that there's probably more uh, pregnant possibility with the metamorpho thing, right? If that's not the alchemical rebus waiting to happen, then I'm, oh, there you I've go. been nodding off.
0: Uh, well, that's uh, something for uh, someone in the Alan Moore tradition to tackle forthwith.
1: Yes, I think actually Grant Morrison may sort of have already done it with his Doom Patrol shtick. But anyway, yes, it is, it is always worth going back to that well, as indeed uh, Roman Afraidon proves by going back to the twin wells of Gnosticism and Faust.
0: Uh, well, that takes us to the end of another exciting book pile, and therefore to the end of another hopefully exciting podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Slabtown Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pellgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Fill our carry-ons with the determination to continue by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com.
1: Join such illustrious patrons as Rick Neal, Alastair Sinclair, Paul Gibson,
0: and Samuel Kreider.
1: Exploit our reach
0: by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height,
1: And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.